Hey everybody, you're listening to the Clearer Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church in Dundas. I'm your host, Paul Vandenbrink, the lead pastor of Grace Valley Church. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in once again to uh, the podcast. You know, last time we we started looking at a Christian response to the transgender phenomenon, and I said that a Christian response should start with challenging the modern notion of freedom that gives rise to the issue. And this this notion basically says that everyone should be free to live as they see fit, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. So if someone wants to identify as one gender when their biological sex is another gender, so what? You just live and learn, right? And we looked at how on the surface that might seem right because it resonates with our moral instincts. But we also looked at how this view of freedom is not actually as freeing as it sounds. There's there's some huge problems with it. And I'm not going to go over those again, because that's what we talked about last time. But I will say this, and, and remind you of this. The question is not whether we should have limits to our freedom. The question is, which limits on our freedom are most beneficial to us individually and for society as a whole because limits to freedom exist regardless of what your definition of freedom actually is. And so we want to know which which limits are best for society and for us individually. And I've argued that the Bible's portrayal of human sex and gender is not just descriptive um, that was two episodes ago now that I described that. I said that that the Bible's portrayal of human sex and gender is the most beneficial uh, restriction on our freedom for society and as a whole because it is normative. And what I mean by that is that the Bible doesn't just describe male and female or men and women. It teaches that God purposely created us as a sexual binary, male and female, and that that sex binary determines our actual gender and certain gender roles. In other words, sex and gender are so closely connected in the Bible that sex actually determines gender. And so I believe that the modern attempt to disconnect gender from sex is actually a very bad thing for human flourishing. It leads to tremendous confusion, and it leads to deep di- distress for people. When you disconnect gender from biological sex, then not only does gender not have to correspond to biological sex, but there's no reason for gender to be fixed at all. Uh, it becomes a wax nose. It can become anything you want because it's not fixed to anything. And this is why you hear a lot today about gender diversity and gender fluidity, fluidity that, that sort of thing. Because gender has been disconnected in our modern world from biological sex. So, for example, on one website for teenagers, it's a website that, you know, answers teen questions to uh, difficult issues. Uh, when asked about how many genders there are, this is what it says, quote, Gender isn't about someone's anatomy. It's about who they know themselves to be. Male, female, transgender, gender neutral, non-binary, agender, pangender, 
gender queer, two-spirited, third gender, and all, none, or any combination of these. End quote. So it goes on to say that there are many different genders. In fact, there's dozens. And this is also why when someone asks, what is a woman? Um, people may actually have a hard time answering that question. I, I think I talked about the Supreme Court candidate who was asked, what is a woman? And, and the answer was, well, uh, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> um, but the Bible, you see, the Bible connects sex and gender. They are intimately connected with one another. And despite what our culture may tell us, the Bible says a couple things, and it says it very, very clearly. It says that there's only two, two sexes. There's male and there's female. That's the sex binary. And it also teaches that there is only two genders, man and woman. And again, this is not descriptive. This is normative. You see this in the fact that this is described in the Bible both before and after the fall. So Genesis 1, of course, uh, says God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Very interesting. It says he created them. And then it says male and female, he created them. Now, that's, of course, before the fall. That's Genesis 1 at the time of creation. But then in Genesis 5, this description is repeated. It says, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. Now, I know that that is, again, a description of creation, but it comes in, in the narrative of redemptive history that the Bible begins with in Genesis 1 and ends with in the book of Revelation. This repetition in Genesis 5, it comes in the context of the fall. And so, in a post-fall world, the dimorphic sex binary of male and female is actually maintained. And, you know, Jesus himself underlines this fact in Matthew chapter 19. In that, pa in that passage, you know, he's asked about divorce. Some Pharisees, they come up to test him, and they say, they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus' response is, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, we're going to talk about this passage more when we deal specifically with homosexuality, but for now, just see how, how, how Scripture repeatedly upholds that there are two sexes and two sexes only, and therefore, there are two genders and two genders only. How do I make this connection? Well, stick with me here. We just talked about Genesis 1, right? And we talked about how Genesis 1, and then in Genesis 5, it talks about being created male and female, and then it says in Matthew 19, Jesus upholds that binary, right? But Genesis, before the fall, doesn't just describe creation sort of broadly in broad strokes in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, it zeroes in on the pinnacle of that creation, the creation of Adam and Eve. And there we see the move from male and female to man and woman. When God presents Eve to Adam, 
Scripture says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the clear implication of this move from male and female in Genesis 1 to man and woman in Genesis 2 is that a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender and certain key gender roles. That is this, human males grow into men and potentially husbands and fathers, though not always, and human females grow into women and potentially wives and mothers, although not always. In fact, it is this set of binary connections that makes human marriage possible. And again, this is going to come up more when we talk about same-sex marriage and homosexuality in, in upcoming episodes. Now, there's a lot of things to be said about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And frankly, the church has often gotten it wrong. We've, we've gotten gender wrong, just as, as society has. Um, unhelpful stereotypes exist around gender, and that can confuse people if they don't fit the stereotype. While Christians should never fail to obey all that God says about gender, at the same time, we should never go beyond what he says about gender either. Because when we do, we obscure what God does say, and then, you know, frankly, then we have no right to complain when people misunderstand what the Bible says, or they reject biblical teaching and along with cultural and go along with cultural norms that we ourselves have raised to have the same authority as God's word. Let me give you a, a very clear example. If you don't know what I'm trying to get at, if a parent cares more about their son's athletic ability than their sacrificial love for others, then they have more of a cultural view of masculinity than they do a biblical one. That's what I'm trying to say. But scripture does consistently affirm two sexes and two corresponding genders. This is not to say that the Bible presents human sex and gender outside the Garden of Eden as straightforward. Of course not. To the contrary, it teaches that sin has, has had this catastrophic effect on every part of our humanity. Um, our hearts are corrupt. Our minds are corrupt. And our bodies are corrupt too. You know, Paul... In Romans chapter 8, he says that our bodies have been subjected to frustration are, and are in bondage to decay. In other words, because sin and death have permeated both ourselves and our world, all kinds of things go wrong with us, both psychologically at the level of the mind and physiologically at the level of the body. And Gender dysphoria is one example of this. When someone says they hate their body or they feel like they are at war with their body, which is something that you may hear from trans people, that's a manifestation of living in a fallen world. It's a consequence of living in a created order that is subjected to frustration and in bondage to decay. The biblical response to this is to seek to align your sense of gender identity with your 
biological sex. Listen to how philosopher Oliver O'Donovan puts it. I think he does it clearly. I think he puts it compassionately. Listen to this, quote, The sex into which we have been born, assuming that it is physiologically unambiguous, is given to us to be welcomed as a gift of God. The task of psychological maturity involves accepting this gift and learning to love it, even though we may have to acknowledge that it does not come to us without problems. Our task is to discern the possibilities for personal relationship which are given to us with this biological sex and to seek to develop them in accordance with our individual vocations. Responsibility in sexual development implies a responsibility to nature, to the ordered good of the bodily form which we have been given. End quote. So, while all kinds of things can go wrong with us, both physiologically and psychologically, the hard truth of it is, is that the Bible offers no support to the idea that one can actually be a man trapped in a woman's body, or a woman trapped in a man's body. That may well be a person's subjective feeling, but it is not an objective fact, and therefore we ought not follow what's often described as gender-affirming therapy. We not ought, we ought not, sorry, we ought not counsel people to change their physiology to, uh, to, to agree with their psychology. Let, let me give you an analogy. Um, let's say you have a young woman. She goes to her high school counselor and she says, I am overweight. I am fat. I am ashamed of myself. I hate my body. I hate what I look like. And I don't know what to do. And you look at her, and you can see that her her cheeks are hollow, her eyes are sunken, she looks gaunt, almost emaciated, and she's obviously not well. And then she says, you know, I try not to eat very often. I count my calories very, very carefully. And when I do eat more than I think I should, well, then I cause myself to throw up because I know I am so fat. What should you say to her? Would you say, you know what, if that's the way you feel, you're right. You are overweight, uh, and I will help you in your quest to continue to lose weight. And on top of that, if anyone in the school tries to tell you that you're beautiful or that you're thin, we will not tolerate that. We will not allow that. Now, you would say that that was wrong, I hope. I hope you would say that, that this young woman, she needs compassion, Yes, she needs love. Yes. And she needs the truth. She needs to learn the truth about her body. And she needs to learn to love her body. And the same is true for those wrestling with gender dysphoria. They need compassion. They need love. They need patience and understanding. They need a safe place to express their struggle and their pain and their confusion and they also need truth. As a young woman who transitioned to become a man and then 
after a while, detransitioned again. She put it this way. She says, it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Now, I'm trying to anticipate objections. Like when I think through these things myself, I, I, I say to myself, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Well, here's a yeah, but. Someone might say, well, this, these are two different things. This is apple and oranges, right? If I let a person with an eating disorder continue in their direction, they are going to die. Uh, but the rates of suicide for people with gender dysphoria are so high that affirming their identity could actually be life-saving. Uh, a mother of a trans boy summed up this sentiment very well when she was asked how she came to the decision to let her young daughter transition. And she said, I'd rather have a living son than a dead daughter. That's a legit concern, guys. It is. And you know, the relationship between suicide and trans people is a very delicate topic. I, I can't think of anything more horrific than a son or daughter taking their own life. I, I can barely imagine it at all, frankly. Um, and of course, suicidality is a complex issue. And, and then when it gets enmeshed, with the trans conversation, it only gets more complicated. Um, you know, there's been a lot of studies done on suicidality among trans people. And, and the results are actually not very consistent. Uh, nobody disputes that suicidality is high among trans people. But just how high is tougher to say. Uh but one of the, the important aspects of this issue is actually the most neglected when, when it comes to the studies that have been done. Um, most of the studies that have been completed fail to account for the presence of co-occurring mental health concerns among the trans population. Now, that's changing. More and more studies are coming out now that are controlling for the presence or, or at least providing for the presence of co-occurring mental health concerns. Um, but that's an important factor because without question, unaddressed mental health issues are the number one cause of suicidality. That should come as no surprise, right? It's estimated that over 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental illness at the time of their death. And it has been very well documented that trans-identifying people, especially teenagers, okay, they have a rate of co-occurring mental health issues that is much higher than the general population. And it's noteworthy that when suicidal ideation among trans adolescents is compared to that among non-trans youth with mental health issues, the percentages are actually roughly the same. So when you compare uh, suicidality among trans youth with co-occurring mental health issues, uh, compare that to the percentages of suicidal ideation among adolescents generally with co-occurring mental health issues or with mental health issues, the percentages are roughly the same between those two groups. And this suggests that, that simply being trans is not necessarily a direct path towards suicidality. There are other co-occurring mental health issues that contribute significantly to a person's uh, 
suicidal ideation. And it's, it's even more complicated in that um, exposure to suicide has actually been shown to increase suicidality. So social contagion, what's called social contagion, is an important piece of the discussion about suicidality and trans identity. Uh, I've mentioned this guy before, I think, Preston Sprinkle. Um, he's a, a scholar who's done a great deal of work in this area. He's not a scientist. Um, he's a theologian and a biblical scholar, but he has dealt a lot with issues of sexuality, etc. In his book, Embodied, he writes, quote, if the suggestion of suicide makes people more prone to attempting suicide then promoting the idea that trans people tend to be suicidal may itself increase suicidality among trans people, especially teenagers, end quote. Uh, you may remember, I, I, I don't know how long ago it was, but uh, Netflix put out a, a series called 13 Reasons Why, and it was a story about a teenage girl's suicide. After that series came out, the United States saw a spike in adolescent suicide rates. Um, and when parents and their trans kids are given the choice between transition or suicide, this narrative may actually increase suicide rates among trans people. Now, None of this, okay, none of this takes away from the fact that trans people are at much higher risk of suicide than the general population, especially among teenagers. And some say that the best solution for people who struggle is therefore to transition. That's the way to, to best protect, protect them against suicidality. But, but as Sprinkle uh, puts it, Quote, this perspective is problematic at best and harmful at worst. Transitioning can introduce a whole new set of physical, emotional, and psychological problems that could contribute to depression and thus suicidality, end quote. I'm not going to go into all the details here, but I will say this. Um, I've done a bit of reading around what, what, what happens, what, like the process of transitioning, and it is it is long, it is arduous, and uh, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but it is a proper explanation of it. It 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 does physical violence to the human body. It, it requires that. Um, if you want to know more about that, then I encourage you to Google a recent article in Quillette magazine. It's an online magazine by a guy named Scott Nugent, and the article is this: is titled. Forget what gender activists asked. <laughs> Sorry. The title is Forget What Gender Activists Tell You. Here's what medical transition looks like. And he describes in great detail the process. And it is it is quite something. You know, studies have shown that suicidality among trans people is as high after transitioning as it is before. So there's, there's no significant reduction in suicidality for trans people who do go through uh, the transition process and procedures. Now, you could argue that this is because trans people experience discrimination or what is sometimes uh, referred to as minority stress. So they, they, there are stressors in society that they experience as a minority. 
Um, we know that social rejection leads to mental health issues for all kinds of folk, including trans folk. And this, this may be why transitioning doesn't necessarily ease a trans person's suicidality because they're continuing to experience social rejection. Um, but a couple things there. First of all, uh, minority stress or social rejection, it's tough to define. You know, it's hard to know what types of experiences trans people have that can properly be described as social rejection. You know, that's kind of a subjective thing. Um, and if that was such a significant factor in suicidal ideation among trans people, then, then you would expect that in countries where there is a very high acceptance of trans people in social life, that in those countries there would be a much lower suicide rate among trans folks. Um, but the fact is, there isn't. It's still very high. All of this is to say, to, to weaponize suicidality, to push a particular ideological point, it might actually increase suicide attempts amongst trans people rather than reduce them. So, what am I trying to say? <laughs> I'll just add this. Uh, very recently, I just read it actually today in a New York Times uh, article. Um, countries that have been much farther, farther, farther along in the uh, trans identity, gender affirming uh, path, if you will, uh, particularly in Europe. So I'm thinking countries like Sweden, uh, Finland, France, um, Great Britain. Each of these countries has actually uh, dialed back their uh, policies around when to allow young people to take puberty blockers, at what age they can start receiving hormone treatments, at what age they're allowed to actually uh, undergo any type of gender reassignment surgery. Uh, and the reason they're doing that is because they're discovering that um, – Many, many, many of the, the young people who came to them at a very young age for uh, gender-affirming therapies uh, discovered after a period of time that they weren't actually trans, and but it was in a sense too late in that they had changed their physiology uh, and it would be very, very uh, traumatizing to have to change back again. So a, a, a Christian, Christian response to the transgender phenomenon must take seriously, very seriously, the risk of suicide among those who struggle with gender dysphoria. But the answer to that problem is not to encourage people to embrace their new gender identity. The answer is to compassionately, patiently, sacrificially counsel people to learn to love their body. You know, studies have demonstrated that as many as 85% of children who are gender dysphoric will eventually find their sense of gender aligning with their biological sex by the time they reach adulthood. And other studies have shown that it is quite possible for gender dysphoric adults to live at peace with their biological sex as well. But that's not always the case. Sometimes people struggle for a long time with gender dysphoria, and, and it may never entirely go away. But that doesn't mean that they are doomed to a life of misery. 
like all of us, they are faced with a life of suffering. And, you know, I've maybe mentioned it before, Jordan Peterson is not a Christian, but at least he gets this biblical truth, and that is this, life is suffering. It is. We in the West have come to try, have come to believe, we have fooled ourselves into believing that, that life is not suffering or that suffering can be avoided. Now, of course, we can minimize aspects of suffering, it's true, but, but the, the principle that life is suffering, that is inescapable. But that doesn't mean that life has to be miserable. Because what is unique about the gospel is, is it transforms suffering. What Jesus does is he shows us that through suffering, we can actually find meaning in life. I, I can't speak for the trans community on this issue, uh, so I'm going to let someone else uh, do that. Her name is Melinda Selmus. She's a Catholic writer. She struggles with gender dysphoria. But listen to what she writes. It's a pretty long quote, but I think it's worth listening to. Suffering in Christianity is not only not meaningless, it is ultimately one of the most powerful media for the transmission of meaning. We can stand in adoration between the cross and kneel and kiss the wood that bore the body of our Savior because this is the means by which the ugly, meaningless, atheistic suffering of the world, I mean the problem of evil, was transmuted into the living water, the blood of Christ, the wellspring of creation. The great paradox here is that the tree of death and suffering is the tree of life. This central paradox in Christianity allows us to love our brokenness precisely because it is through that brokenness that we image the broken body of our God and the highest expression of divine love. That God in some sense wills it to be so seems evident in Gethsemane. Christ prays, not my will, but thine be done. And when God's will is done, it involves the scourge and the nails. It's also always struck me as particularly fitting and beautiful that when Christ is resurrected, his body is not returned to a state of perfection as the body of Adam in Eden, but rather it still bears the marks of his suffering and death. End quote. The Christian life is a life of cross-carrying. And gender dysphoria is the cross that some may be called to bear. And to choose to follow Christ and carry the cross, uh, sometimes it makes life harder. But it certainly makes life better. Not necessarily worse. And it's certainly not going to be harder forever. That's the promise of the gospel. Now, I'm going to end it there, guys, because we're I think we're at like a half an hour, and I, I, I don't want to make these things too long. Um, but next time, I'm it might be a bit of a shorter podcast, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to address some very practical issues related to the gen transgender issue, like very practical questions, questions like, what do I do if my child identifies as trans? Uh, 
Should I call someone by their preferred pronouns? Uh, what should church leaders do if someone asks them to identify the, uh, their child as the opposite gender of, of their biological sex? Things like that. And I'll be just sharing sort of my thoughts on that, why I have those thoughts. Obviously, not everyone's going to agree with me. I'm open to being corrected, of course. And if you have a specific question that you would like me to answer, feel free to ask it. You can find all my contact info on our church's website, uh, www.gracevalleychurch.ca. You can fire me a question. Maybe it'll it'll get into the podcast. I can't promise, um, but I will certainly look at it and consider it and try to get back to you. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope uh, this has been helpful, and I hope you have a, a wonderful day. Until next time, so long. Thank you.